Welcome back to Fortitude, everybody. J.W. Wilson, my co-host, Brenton Payne, brought to you by Captex Bank, our friends, uh, Mike Thomas. You're going to love this one. Brenton, when I mention the name Emmett Smith to you, what comes to mind? Well, I've actually brought uh, something that comes to mind. <laughs> and I was wondering when we got at this house, I didn't realize that the Emmett Smith lives here in Fort Worth. <laughs> we are in the home of the legendary Emmett Smith. Not the guy you're holding the jersey of, but the the more important for in regards to what we're doing today, Emmett Smith. Welcome to the show, Emmett. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be a part of this. This man, Brenton, has lived a life. Uh, he's still living, obviously, 95 years young, but he has lived a, a life that we're about to, to dig into today because it's fascinating. So forget the other Emmett Smith. <laughs> this guy is worth our time today. So let's get started. What do you say? All right. Emmett, uh, 95, like I said, you grew up in a town called Arkansas City, Kansas, correct? Correct. Tell us about life in Arkansas City, please. Arkansas City was founded around 1840, almost completely by New Englanders who had read ads about the fertile soil and the wonderful weather, and they moved practically lock, stock, and barrel. And settle this town. They made the streets beautiful with huge American elms made tunnels of the streets, mm. red brick streets, nicely done, a marvelous public school system with orchestras in the junior high school, the high school, the junior college. And this was back in the days when women could not be married and teach. And they could be widows and teach, but they couldn't teach if they were married. Makes sense, right? And no, it doesn't. <laughs> I know it doesn't. And uh, anyway, they were dedicated to what they were doing, and it was marvelous. I had the best French teacher in Arkansas City, Kansas, than I had in Paris, France. Um, anyway, uh, my father was an accountant, and he was very crazy about violin music. He had five children, with my mother, of course, and all five, at the age of five, were started with violin lessons. Quarter size, half size, full size, as you grew. He made a terrible mistake. Uh, when I was five years old, that was 90 years ago, he took me, uh, the three oldest boys, took us to an organ recital in the Presbyterian church, which had a beautiful Kimball organ, pipe organ. They were all pipe organs in those days. And we um, were all settled in this beautiful church, which is just a big pink dome over us. And I remember the name of the organist. His name was Homer Dodge Kane Jr. And he began to play. Our church didn't yet have a pipe organ. It did in 1939. I heard this sound, and it was hypnotic. It was really as though I were in a different place. I wasn't on earth. And from that minute on, my mother called it organ fever. <laughs> Every time I had a chance to go hear an organ, I would go. And my piano teacher, I, I took violin for 10 years. And then I sneaked piano in there because my father would not have a piano in the house. And I had learned to play the piano fairly well. 
uh, before my mother and I got a piano, free, delivered and tuned, no cost, because one of the music stores was overloaded with a warehouse full of pianos. And so they just delivered it and tuned it, and it was ours. Uh, my father was furious when he found <coughs> the piano, and my mother was uh, prepared. And she said, well, you know, when you and the boys want to practice with your accompanist, you have to walk 16 blocks, because we didn't have a car. We were poor. 16 blocks to practice with her. And her name was Dora Mae Weber. And she was a marvelous <coughs> pianist. And she became the organist of our church in 1939 when we got the new organ. She had a car. And my mother said, when you want to rehearse, when the boys are going to have to play somewhere, rehearse with her, she can drive here 16 blocks. And you don't have to make that long walk and have more time just to practice. Well, that's not a bad idea. So he didn't know I could play the piano. And one day he came home and I was ripping through a Chopin etude or something that was uh, lots of notes. And he just stared at me and said, what's this? And I said, well, I want to learn to play the organ. And he said, well, from now on, you can accompany the other two boys. And I said, okay. And uh, the best organist in town was my piano teacher. And she said she wouldn't teach me organ until I could play two Beethoven sonatas from memory and two part inventions of Bach. So I practiced four hours a day, no matter what came up, four hours practice. And on the piano. And when I could play those, she started me. And I was uh, 14 years old. And two weeks later, after my two lessons, I substituted in a hurry at the Methodist church who had to have an organist quick. And uh, that was the beginning. And then when I was uh, almost 16, I was right at the end of 15, the choir director at my church, our church had a big congregation, biggest one in town, five choirs, three Sunday services, excellent music. The choir director, who was also my geometry teacher in high school, called me on the phone and said, Dora Mae Weber came down with polio on Monday and she died today, Friday. You're going to play the three services on Sunday. Oh, it was. What did you feel like when I, you got I, that? I, like I'd been hit by a ton of bricks because I had to learn the anthem accompaniments, all the hymns that were going to be used. And at the night service, which was very informal, anyone in the congregation could call out a hymn number mm. and we would sing it. So I immediately started on page one and I learned all the hymns in the hymnal so that I could play him on an instant's notice. And uh, I'm so grateful that, that I had that chance. I'm sorry for Dora Mae Weber, <laughs> but uh, because when I went to college, I had such a big repertory behind me, mm -hmm. having to prepare music for three services every Sunday, that I was 
loaded down with pieces I could play. How'd you go about doing the practice, the practicing, you know, four hours a day and then to learn those, would you take it one hymn at a time or how do you you have a method? I would probably play that hymn over and over and over until uh, it was practically memorized. Mm -hmm. I knew what was going to happen on it. And, uh, I never, I never quit practicing hymns because there's a real art to hymn playing. And very few, now I don't mean to make organists angry, but there are few even really good organists around who do do a good job, in my opinion. Why would they get mad about that? I mean, I don't know. (laughs) They think hymn playing is not important. You just drag drag the congregation through it and that's it. Mm -hmm. And I was taught, you, the music has to interpret the meaning of the text. So if the hymn talks about the, the trumpets of Jericho, you don't want to be playing along on soft string stops. Mm. You want the trumpets of Jericho. Mm. And you make the, the, the organ just magnify the strength of the poetry. And... Uh, it it takes a lot of practice, and uh, I don't play for churches anymore. My last public playing was in when I was ninety two. That was three years ago, and I decided it's time to quit, and I quit. Um, Where was the last place I played for a funeral at Arborlawn Methodist Church mm-hmm. here in Fort Worth? Mm-hmm. Well, don't skip ahead too far. We uh-huh. you missed over a whole bunch of good stuff. Let's go back to our Kansas City, if you don't mind. All right. Uh, you're doing this. You're, you're you're practicing. You're playing all these services. You're thrust into the world of the organ, yes. and you're loving it, I know, but you're obviously under a lot of stress. But in 1950, something happened that brought you here to Fort Worth. What, what happened? There are journals like uh, the American Organist magazine and one called The Diapason, which is 100 years old in public publishing, and the etude used to be published for all musicians and other journals that keep you up what's hap- on, on what's happening in the world of music. And uh, I began to read in these journals about Fort Worth, Texas, the university there called Texas Christian University was building a new building which would have in it a, a beautiful new auditorium with a magnificent new pipe organ, custom built, of course, as all pipe organs are, to match that room and sound wonderful. And that was 1949. And I was getting my first degree at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas, which I chose because they had an excellent organ teacher. Um, And so I had a, I commuted from Arkansas City to Winfield, which was 14 miles, so I didn't live on campus. But I had a 1937 Dodge Coupe, very reliable car, and I drove. And so I just decided to get into my little Dodge and drive to Fort Worth. The building was finished. The dedicatory recitals had been played and uh, had gotten glowing criticism from musicians all over the country. So I drove down here, and of course, this was before the days of 
interstate highways. So <clears throat> Highway 77 just uh, put me right in the middle of downtown Fort Worth. And I stopped someone and said, how do I get to TCU? And he said, that next street is 7th. Just go that way on 7th until you get to University Drive. So I did. And I turned off of 7th Street. And within three or four blocks, I was in a dense forest. There were no buildings, uh, not even a filling station. Uh, there was a, a beer joint just as I got to the bottom of the hill on University Drive before I went up the hill to uh, uh, TCU campus. Well, I thought I, the guy had told me wrong because I had driven for a couple of miles in a dense forest on a little two-lane ragged street. And suddenly I burst out on the TCU campus and what a change from what it is today. The, the president of the university's wife had insisted and won the battle to plant hundreds of live oak and, and deciduous oaks all over the campus. And this, the trunks of the big trees you see now were the size of broomsticks. And the campus was just barren. And uh, Ed Landreth was the biggest, the newest building. And so I parked. That was not a problem. Went inside. Outside, it was about 103 degrees. Went in where Dean McCorkle kept his building at 65 during hot weather. He freeze to death. And so I went into the lobby, and I could hear the organ being played. So I looked through the little window in the door at the back of the auditorium, and there was a cluster of students around the organ console. That means the keyboards, the pedal board, and all that. And so I slipped in quietly and sat down in the back row. And a student whose name was Marion Armstrong, still living, she lives in Waco, uh, turned around and said, hi, you back there. Are you an organist? And I said, yes. And she said, well, come on up. So I went up there and she said, uh, do you want to play something? And I said, am I allowed to? I'm not registered here. And she said, of course, of course. And they were all organ majors clustered around the console. So I sat down because I had played my graduation recital just a few weeks before. It was all memorized. Uh, I played the Prelude and Fugue in A minor of Bach. And that totally takes about seven or eight minutes. And at the end, of, uh, they were very quiet. They didn't make any disturbance while I played. And I was just shocked. I had never heard an organ like that. And when I was trying it out, I said, oh, that's the most sound I have ever heard come out of an organ. And Marion said, you don't even have the shutters open. And what makes the sound of the organ on certain keyboards are opening and closing very thick wooden shutters. And it just closes in the sound or you let the sound out. Then when I opened the shutters and the main trumpet stops and trombone stops and the organ were behind the shutters, I was speechless. It was magnificent. And then I heard a voice across the footlights. 
I didn't know. I never met, met him. It was Dean McCorkle. And he said, uh, young man, are you looking for a graduate school to study organ? And I said, well, yes, I am. And he said, well, when you're finished here, stop by my office it's in the lobby. So I did. And he said, I heard you play. And I came in to listen. And he said, if you want to come here for a master's degree, I will give you total tuition free. You will have to work six hours a week grading papers for either music theory or musicology. And I said, fine, that's wonderful. And so that's how I came to TCU. At the same time, the dean hired the Moeller Pipe Organ Company salesman for Texas and the states around it. He was the salesman for this area, and he convinced Dean McCorkle to buy this Moeller organ and a Moeller practice organ up on the second floor, and a small one. And I knew him. He went to Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas, where I went. When I was 12 years old, I heard Gordon Young play his junior recital at Southwestern. And he got his degree there and uh, made a name for himself as a composer, mainly of organ pieces and anthems for churches. Uh, he could really play, a brilliant recitalist. And uh, he was to play one of the dedicatory recitals on this new organ. Well, there was not an organ like the one in Atlanta, anywhere within miles and miles of states, practically. It was a new sound to people in this area. And the E. Power Biggs from uh, Harvard played, Dean Doty from University of Texas, uh, Alexander McCurdy from Curtis Institute in Philadelphia, and Gordon Young were the dedication, dedicatory recitalists. The Sunday afternoon of Gordon's recital in Ed Landers, it was packed with people standing around the wall to hear him play. The dean was pacing the lobby. He couldn't find Gordon Young. He kept hearing his phone ring. So he finally went into his office. It was Gordon Young. Now, Dean McCorkle told me all this himself. Gordon said on the phone to the dean, tell all those people to go home. I'll, uh, I'll play this recital for them some other time, but I'm about to get a contract signed here for a nice, big, three-manual molar <laughs> for Central Christian Church, and I just can't pass up that, that uh, paycheck for selling that organ. Tell them to come back some other time. That was Sunday. He drove, driving from... Uh, El Paso uh, is a long drive. Well, Tuesday he was fired. And Dean McCorkle hired a newly retired organ professor from Northwestern University, whose name was Whitehouse. He came down and finished the second semester for Gordon. The next semester was the first fall semester. I appeared and TCU had hired a, a new 
uh, organ teacher. Uh, I won't mention his name, but he was hired quickly. And uh, the in those days, the deans and the and the and the chairman of departments made the decisions, and they had made a decision maybe a little too quick, and the one they hired did not play well. And uh, about Thanksgiving time, Dean McCorkle called me in to his office. He never minced words, and he said, I want to know, are you learning anything from uh, Professor so-and-so? I said, why do you ask? And he said, I want to know, do you? And I said, he said, I have mutiny on my hands. He said, a whole bunch of organ majors came in here and said, if they have to take organ from him the spring semester, they will change majors or schools. He said, we can't have that. Would you be willing to teach the, the malcontents and let the other guy teach the ones who don't know the difference? And I said, well, no, I would enjoy that. He said, have you ever taught before? I said, yes. In Arkansas City, I taught a couple of students how to play the organ. So he said, all right, I want you to be full-time. So you will work 40 hours a week for me as an administrative assistant for the School of Fine Arts and teach the organ students who want to study with you. And I was tickled to death to have some money coming in. And uh, what were they paying you in it? My full-time salary was $3,500 a year. And that was adequate. Uh, I mean, I could live on that. Uh, that's what I was getting when I got married. It, our apartment was $50 a month. Uh, we didn't have a car. So that's the way it was. And uh, in those days, anybody who was taking applied music, that, uh, uh, that means uh, uh, where you perform, mm -hmm. when it was exam time at the end of the semester, you played for the entire music faculty, not just organ people or keyboard people for organ and piano and brass people for trumpets and trombones and so on. And you had to listen to everybody. It took a week. And, but you knew who your students were, no matter what, whether they sang or, or played the violin. Mm -hmm. You knew good or bad for the whole department. And so uh, the, uh, the difference, of course, between organ majors who wanted to really amount to something and those who just wanted uh, a credit you had to, at TCU, you have to have three hours of uh, cultural credit for any degree. Mm -hmm. uh, the comparison was like night and day, black and white. Uh, the dean told me I was the organ teacher from then on. So I just stayed for 45 years. and uh, Until 1996, correct? 1996. I started teaching it January the 1st. 1951, uh, so I taught 45 years, and I never asked for a raise. I never asked to be promoted. 
but it just happened. And by the time I had taught there four years, I had my first student win a Fulbright scholarship to go study in uh, Denmark with a famous organist. And he's still living, uh, my student. He lives in Dallas. And uh, I had a wife and uh, three children. He's a wonderful musician. Turned out to be a Catholic priest, even with a wife and children. Uh, amazing. I've had that happen to three different students uh, from TCU in those years. Well, anyway, other things happened. I began to get nice uh, attention for TCU because I would take my students to play recitals in Austin and Houston and Oklahoma City. Shreveport, uh, uh, New Mexico, and of course, Texas, and uh, Fort Worth, and Dallas. And I played a recital every year. And so you have to keep your program ahead of the, in front of the public in order to attract students. Well, pretty soon I was teaching 33 Oregon students and working 40 hours a week. I was having about a 70-hour workload. Of course, my salary increased nicely. But um, in the 80s, the university gave me the honor of the Norton Chair for the professorship of music, all of the music school. And they only have one. And so I had that until I retired and the Norton family in uh, San Antonio endowed that chair. And so when I retired, that went to piano teacher, John Owings. And uh, so things like that made my life terribly busy because I always had a church job at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, terribly busy, but what I like to do and I wouldn't trade it with anybody. I wouldn't trade TCU with any school. I have taught master classes at other universities. There's no comparison because I know other teachers. For 45 years, I knew teachers who were as, as dedicated to helping the students as anybody could be. And I've had student after student with a degree from TCU in Oregon, come back decades later and said, I didn't realize what I was getting at TCU. And he said, at most schools, it's, if you flunk out, I don't care. It's just one less problem to deal mm. with. And I never ran into that at TCU. And that made me feel good. My family has seven TCU degrees in my immediate family. I had two children. I have two children. One is now 59 and the other one is 61. Um, that makes me feel old <laughs> to think that. Um, but my first wife had three degrees from TCU and my present wife has a degree. Uh, it was... Uh, our blood is purple, mm. and uh, 
tell us if you don't mind, tell us some of the some of your students over the years. You've had numerous people go on to illustrious careers with the organ all over the world. You've told us before. Yes, I had. A, tell us a little about these people. I had a brilliant student from Beaumont, Texas. His name was Wayne Kahn, C O H N, who ended up as the organist choir master of St. George's Episcopal Church in Manhattan, New York City, which was a very prominent church, lots of music, where E. Power Biggs from Harvard made a lot of his organ recordings on the organ in that church. And New York is not a good place ordinarily to be the organist in a church because there are so many organists and so many schools there teaching organ that they won't pay them very much. And after Wayne had been there for a decade, he just analyzed the situation, had no savings account. Uh, Instead of a a salary of any uh, consequence, he was given a big apartment as part of the church building. So he didn't have to pay rent. So he left, went back to Houston, immediately found a church job, uh, was hired by a hotel, big hotel chain, to do uh, computer work for them, where he stayed until he retired. And uh, so he didn't give up playing until he came back to, to instead of Fort Worth, he, he inherited a house in Dallas, and that's where he lives. But I also have the uh, person in charge of all the music, and particularly the choral and orchestral music at the Naval Academy in Annapolis. His name is Monty Maxwell, and he is from San Angelo, Texas. And he had come here and had taught himself to play the organ by listening to records of Virgil Fox, E. Power Biggs, and other organists who had made good discs. And he went, his parents took him to San Antonio from San Angelo to hear Virgil Fox. He was the famous organist from Riverside Church in New York, where his salary was $10,000 a year. But he made his living playing concerts everywhere. And so they went there to hear him play his recital. And very timidly afterwards, his father told me this, Monty went up after the recital, went backstage and met Virgil and said he was interested in organ. Would he advise him where to go study? Because he had never had a teacher. And he said, Virgil, uh, we became very good friends with Virgil. And he's eaten at this table a good many times. And he said, well, you live in Texas, don't you? And Monty said, well, yes, I do. And he said, go to TCU. That's all. So he did. He was so brilliant. After he got his degree at TCU, he was taken by, as a student, for graduate work at Curtis Institute in Philadelphia, which is the most distinguished music school in the nation. 
they only take, they take no more than four organ students mm-hmm. and the students who will make a full-fledged orchestra. In addition, they will take voice students up to a certain limit and piano students. But all the other students are to make this orchestra. And Curtis was the, the owner of the Curtis Candy Company, mm-hmm. made millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. And at this school is so endowed, all the students go totally free. Mm. They come from all over the world to try to get in. Well, I've had two students. I had three, three, three former students who got in. Uh, But Monty got his uh, postgraduate degree plus an artist diploma from there. Then he went, the same teacher taught at Juilliard. Uh, so he went to Juilliard and got a, a regular master's with John Reber at Juilliard. And then there was a competition for a new organist choir master for the Naval Academy. So he entered the competition, which was for organists from all over the country, and won. And he's been there now 20, about 22 years. And every Halloween, he puts on the best Broadway musical show in that magnificent, huge chapel at the Naval Academy at Annapolis. It seats 2,500 people, and they sell it out three times Mm. in two days' performances. And $20 a seat, and he was given a budget of $88,000 to put on the show. And it's worth going to. It is. He plays the whole thing with this five keyboard organ with orchestra, choir, violinist, dancers, uh, singers of all kinds. Uh, and the tickets are sold. Never more time you selling tickets than three hours. That's mm. impressive. Yes. Yeah. And he puts on these shows. Well, anyway. Uh, so. Monty Maxwell. And then uh, I've had, uh, I have two former students who live in Europe. One teaches in Germany and one teaches in uh, Sweden. Uh, I have uh, a lot of my students that, that had distinguished positions are retired now. And because uh, I've been retired now 26 years. And uh, well, let's talk about that then for a sec. <laughs> okay, you retired from TCU in '96. Yes. But then you continued to play several churches in the Metroplex until the year 2008. Yes. Correct. Were now, the 2008 was Carr Chapel. Robert TCU. Carr Chapel. Yes. Uh, Mr. Carr from uh, West Texas. He was in San Angelo. Uh, gave the money for that gorgeous chapel, Robert Carr Chapel. It was finished in in 1953, and we remember that very well because my wife, Sue, and I wanted to get married in it, and it was supposed to be finished in time for us to get married in May of 1953. The time came and it wasn't finished. So instead we got married in the small chapel of the Good Shepherd at University Christian Church, which is very nice, but it only seats about 80 people. And uh, so we had a small wedding 
with people standing out in the lobby. You couldn't all get in because some people came who weren't invited. And uh, uh, we didn't really mind that. But the doors opened at Car Chapel uh, in June. Uh, no, no. We got married in April. The doors opened in May. We got married April the 10th. Uh, we got uh, the door. I played the first service in Robert Carr Chapel in May of 1953. <clears throat> and I played there for 55 years. Did you help with the design of the organ? When those yes. places are built, yes. do they, are they built um, uh, uh, with the organ? In, how does that work? Yes. Mr. Uh, Carr would not give more than $10,000 for the organ. He had lots of money for the chapel, which is absolutely one of the most beautiful buildings you can mm -hmm. see anywhere. Uh, <clears throat> Where's that on an organ price scale? At that time, you could buy it or a pipe organ for about $800 for each set of pipes. That means 61 pipes mm -hmm. for the keyboard. Uh, so with a 10000 gift and finagling and talking with the Reuter Organ Company in Lawrence, Kansas, mm -hmm. uh, and I knew some of the people there because Kansas had a lot of Reuter organs in them. Uh, in it, uh, we got 14 sets of pipes in the Car Chapel organ, and it was that organ sold other organs like hotcakes. Mm. The salesman would bring people to hear it, and mm -hmm. it was a nice acoustic, beautifully voiced organ, very nice. But it was small, same size as this organ right here. Oh, really? Yes, this is 14, and uh. So in 1979, I went to the money raisers at TCU and said, could you approach a family I know that I think might buy a bigger and a new organ for the chapel? Well, who is it? And I told them, I said, they've already given a couple of million this year. They're not going to give any more. And I said, well... May I have permission to talk to them and see if they'll give any more? And he said, oh, sure, go ahead. You're not going to get it. So um, Sue and I invited the parents of the family to have dinner with us here. And we were about ready for the dessert. And, and I began to tell them about what we would like to have, that the organ was barely adequate but didn't have enough variety in different sounds, different kinds of pipes, that we would like to have it up, brought up to a, a level that could play any kind of music that you want, whether it was French or German or uh, English, American, that it would have the right sound to do that. And so they looked at each other and The man answered first. He, he had stared at her, his wife's eyes, and she evidently sent me a message. He said, he said, we're going to talk to our accountant tomorrow, and I'll call and let you know. So the next day he called and said, you go in and get that organ. We'll pay for it. Mm -hmm. And so in 1979, we got a 36-rank organ, and they paid for it. 
and uh, it's still going full blast. And everybody who plays it says, this is a jewel. And we have the Ed Landreth Magnificent Organ. Mm -hmm. That's the same one? No, a different builder. Okay. Uh, no, the Ed But the original one, though, that you had spoken of? Yes. That when you first came there? It's still there. Mm -hmm. It's still there. And I'm here to tell you why it's so outstanding. Gordon Young not only sold it to the dean and his ability to play it and to teach, he wanted it to sound the way he knew an organ ought to sound the best. And the head voice man for an organ, that means figures out the sound, had died in 1945 or 6. His name was uh, uh, Richard... Uh, uh, it'll come to in a minute. Uh, Whiteleg, Richard Whiteleg. He was English, and he had died, but he had figured out what he knew would make the warmest, richest sound mm -hmm. out of pipes. Mm -hmm. And Moeller had done that. When he died, they got in the clutches of another trend man who was all convinced that. We ought to go back to organs like they were in North Germany in the 1700s and uh, 1600s and 1700s. And suddenly the organ became very shrill. And they don't sound like the organs over there at all. I've played them. And uh, it was just an exaggeration of what they thought they heard. And it ended up Moeller, which was the biggest organ builder in the world at that time, they finished a new pipe organ every day of the year. And uh, they went broke. Well, they hadn't gone broke yet. And Gordon would send the pipes back to the factory mm. if he didn't like them. Mm. And made them to White Legs scale for this auditorium. Well... When he got finished, E. Power Biggs from, from Harvard came into place. Oh, Moeller. Oh. Mm. said, you know, it's just a broom closet. Yes. And I said, well, we think it's pretty good. Yeah, that's a Moeller. Just a broom closet. And I noticed that he practiced five straight hours. If he'd been in a broom closet, he wouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. He loved it. Everybody who's ever played that organ, whether it's from Europe, the East, anywhere in the world, they can't believe it. It is so unusually good because it, Bach, the great musician, said, the most important stop in the organ is the room, the mm -hmm. acoustics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have marvelous acoustics in Atlanta. Absolutely marvelous. You can be sitting in the back row and someone stands on the stage and talks the way I'm talking. You can hear it. Yeah. And when the orchestra plays, you hear the treble instruments equal to the bass. And not many auditoriums. The bass Hall is very good. Mm -hmm. like very good. But those, in my opinion, are the two best acoustic concert halls. All okay. these years, Emmett, of playing the organ in, yeah. in, in churches and chapels and, and TCU, 
we I know this stat because this is what first clued me into the the the, the brilliance of you. But how many weddings have you played in your career? Well, at the University Chapel, the Robert Carr Chapel, I have paid, played 2,600 weddings. But I had played several weddings in my hometown from the time I was 16. And I've played weddings in, in various churches where I've been the organist of Arlington Heights Methodist, uh, University Christian, uh, Arborlong when it used to be Overton Park Methodist. Um, so, did they call and they say, can, "Can you come play?" And then do you say, "What am I playing?" No, or it's just how no. does that work? They have to rever- res- reserve the time at the university chapel or at a, chur- at a church. Mm-hmm. A church with a pipe organ would be big enough to have to have reservations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was uh, a, a wedding in Car Chapel always o- occupied five hours of my time. Mm-hmm. Because I always meet the bride and her groom if he wants to come, her mother if she wants to come, her father if he wants to come. And so many are using the chapel because of its unbelievable low price and its beauty. And they go to religions that don't use the organ. And they come and the bride has been to weddings where there's organ music in it. She wants it. So it takes an hour of very diplomatic approach to sell them on the music that has to be used in the chapel. It has, it cannot be popular, cannot be from a movie, cannot be from an opera. And of course, we break that all the time with uh, Handel's uh, uh, wonderful piece that everybody wants to hear, Largo, from, a, yeah. from an opera. But uh, anyway, sometimes I have to be very, very. Uh, Not such a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stubborn. Mm. I remember one time this, uh, the mother kept saying, we're not going to have that piece. It sounds like a carnival. Anything that I'd play that was fast mm-hmm. was a carnival. Mm-hmm. Slow, oh, it's like a funeral parlor. Mm. And. So then I would say, what church do you go to? And then she would tell me, and I would already have guessed. And I said, well, you're just not used to organ music, and I can't play anything for you that you would know. So just take my word for it that this is what is used in this high class, and you'll not be sorry decades from now. And no, we're not going to have that stuff. And I said, well, where is she buying her tennis shoes? <laughs> no, well, I asked, where, where is she buying her wedding dress? Well, at Neiman's, of course. Yeah. And I said, and where are you buying the tennis shoes to go with it? She said, what do you mean, tennis shoes? She's not going to wear tennis shoes. And I said, well, you're going to have a fortune spent in flowers and clothing for this fancy wedding. And then you want music that's going to fit a saloon or a restaurant or a club, but not a church. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. And eventually convince them. But it, it was a nightmare. Then I have to practice with the solo, the singer. That's a separate time. Then I have to practice at the wedding rehearsal. 
then I have to practice with all the music I'm going to play the next day. And it takes about five hours mm. for each wedding. You ever get tired of playing the wedding march? We didn't allow that at okay. uh, the chapel, except in very rare occasions. Okay. And that what made it rare was that bride is the daughter of a family that just paid for a building on this campus, and we can stretch at least it's good music. It's <laughs> not written for a junk place, yeah. and uh, we would rarely use it. But uh, it was... Any other memorable weddings, good and or bad? Oh, I remember... My, my children keep saying, why don't you write a book? Because there are literally hundreds. Things, weddings, wedding practices change during the years, decidedly. And I remember, remember distinctly the first time the unity candle appeared in Robert Carr Chapel. You know what that is? I think so. Okay. The bride and groom had not planned to have the unity candle, but they went to the dinner after the rehearsal and somebody coaxed them into having the unity candle at the wedding. And so the next night I was told there would be a unity candle. And so that was my first one, but I had seen them at other weddings. And there they were on the uh, communion table, or the altar, whatever you want to call it, the big candle in the, in the middle, and the skinny ones, one on each outside. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they wanted me to be playing Yeshi Joy of Men's Desiring when, uh, by Bach, when the candles were being, the side candles were being built. You know, and then the bride and groom were going to, after the wedding ceremony, they were going to touch their burning wicks and yeah. light the other one. Well, it didn't light. It was not a very good omen. Uh, anyway, and that often happened. But here, coming down the aisle, was the groom's mother carrying one of these things that acolytes in the church carry with a mm -hmm. burning wick mm -hmm. and a, a bell-shaped snuffer mm. on the other side of it. And you could see it shake. She was so nervous. She hadn't practiced it. And the, uh, one of the groomsmen was... was ushering her down the aisle, and he stopped at the steps at the bottom of the chancel, and she went up alone and headed for the table where the candle was. She didn't know and didn't see and didn't notice at all. There was one step up just about this far in front of the table. <laughs> and so that part of the chancel was built up sturdy wood and then covered with a red carpet. And all of a sudden, Yeshu Joy is a quiet mm -hmm. piece. And everybody was watching. And she went, boom. Her foot hit that step up. It was like hitting a drum. Mm. And she fell down. And as she fell, she took that thing and she whacked it on top of the table, put a big gash in the wood, mahogany, mm -hmm. and fell on her face. Uh, she was sort of at the end of the kneeling bench uh -huh. that was in front of the table. And the usher ran up the steps and helped her get up on her feet again. And 
people went, wasn't that awful? Oh, the poor thing. You could hear the congregation, the place was full. <coughs> I went ahead playing and I thought, well, I hope the bride's mother was standing back in the open door to the narthex and saw that, so she'd be more careful. No. <laughs> she came down. By this time, everybody was dead silent. She was on the left end of the table, the north end. When she hit it with her foot, bang, it went, and she threw the thing, and it hit the wall <laughs> under the organ pipes on the north side and fell down in a in a pew for the choir pew and it put out the flame well the funny thing was she fell on her back with her legs pointed straight out at the congregation and they burst into laughter (laughs) they couldn't stop it was so funny (laughs) for that and uh anyway that was are you watching all that? You have a rear view mirror, right? I mean, is that the no, way that right that's... right in front of my eyes. Oh, you're, go- you're doing it from... I'm, oh, you're I'm, facing... I'm on, the console is on the south side in a pit. Okay. And uh, you can see from me, from okay. here up. And the pipes there. are behind you? And the what? The pipes are behind on you? On both sides. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. So I'm just looking here. Here's yeah. the preacher, bride <laughs> and groom, unity candle. One down, oh. next to come. Every bride's worst nightmare came true. What about funerals? How many of those? Oh. More than not weddings? Ne- no, no, not nearly as many as weddings. But, uh, uh, well, funerals, I guess the funniest one was, uh, at least to me, I knew the dead person, and so... I went to the cemetery afterwards, Mm -hmm. and the undertaker, very prominent, had hired a high school boy to work with him at the grave. You know how they put the casket on webbing, Mm -hmm. and after the family is left for most funerals, they lower it into Mm -hmm. the ground. Well, while the preacher was giving a prayer toward the end of the ceremony. The high school boy evidently didn't know exactly what he should be doing. He did something, and it dumped the coffin endwise down into the hole. And you could hear glass break when it, when it hit the bottom. And it's bad we're laughing at this. And, and the What's the end, glass breaking? One, one end was sticking up, and one was down on the. <laughs> what was the glass? There's glass in the casket. Yeah, a lot of them would have. Uh, oh yeah, like the cover you know, for cover, the, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, that would not be there when <laughs> usually when they were if they had viewing. But anyway, oh. the undertaker was had a reputation for being very sour faced. Mm-hmm. Anyway, here the preacher was trying to give a the closing prayer, and the undertaker, undertaker uh, approaches this poor high school boy who was terrified. He said, you idiot! And just screamed it out. <laughs> sort of ruined the end of that funeral. Do you remember the music you played at that? I mean, does, does the music kind of stay with you like that, or it just kind of it kind of blurs together? Uh, you know? At a funeral, a funeral is not a time to try to educate no people's taste and i would always try my very best to play what they wanted me to play mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. oh bury me not on the lone prairie mm-hmm. 
uh, and it was a rancher, why not? Sure. You know, and uh, things like that didn't bother me so much. But I was I got an emergency call <clears throat> at TCU one day that there was a the Hampfield Presbyterian Church was packed full of people for a very important person's funeral. And they realized they didn't have an organist to play. Could I dash over there quick and play for this funeral? So I did. It's a nice Reuter pipe organ in that church. And uh, I had played it before, so I knew. I just walked in and did it. And uh, it was packed with people, all the men all in blue suits. And uh, there were three ministers in the three chairs. Right behind, I could reach back and touch one of them. Mm-hmm. My back was to the congregation, and I was playing, and I heard feet coming down the wooden floor of the, one of the aisles. It had two aisles. I thought, what could that be? What was the undertaker? And he was waving a $5 bill. I didn't know it. Found out later. He, he climbed the steps, came up to where the preachers were sitting, and reached between the two of the preachers and Stuck a $5 bill right here where I could see it. And I was playing. I said, not down. <laughs> I'm busy. And, you know, this is for you. Come on now. Mm-hmm. You take it. It's for me. So finally, I got a hand free and took it. $5 was what he was paying <laughs> for that funeral. And for funerals, it was very, very rare that people would remember to pay the organist. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emmett, as as we get to the end of this interview, please tell us about this beautiful organ sitting behind you because it's got a story of its own, if you don't mind. All right. Whenever my students at TCU played their graduating recital, my wife and I would give a reception here, more like a, a supper. And the student was allowed to invite 40 guests to the reception. And we needed more room for that, so we decided to double the size of the house. And I have always wanted to have a real organ in my house. And so I drew up the plans, took them to several contractors. The prices were just way more than we had paid for the house and the land when we first bought it in 1958. And uh, so I bought some books. And I had good manual training up in Arkansas City, and I built it myself. I had a younger brother who helped me for 30 days, and you're sitting in it. And so we doubled the size of the house and made room for a pipe organ. And so we now have a pipe organ in the house, which has a 1,000 pipes, and you can play any kind of music in it you want. And we've had recitals here for... Uh, prep students who start organ when they're still in high school. Uh, Jack White, who was used to be the director of the Texas Boy Choir, uh, started organ with me when he was 11. Uh, terribly gifted, marvelous musician, still living. And uh, so I wanted to know, how am I going to get an organ? Because by 19... Uh, Let's see. I began to collect the pipes in 1980. And I found 
a couple of organs, one in Missouri and one in Nebraska, that were being tossed out of churches because the churches had closed up. And uh, one of them telephoned me and said, would you want any part of this organ? We're just going to junk it. And I said, I'll be right there. Is it, is it okay? And he said, oh, yeah, it's in good shape. Well, it wasn't. So anyway, I got pipes, some pipes, like these big zinc pipes mm -hmm. from there for nothing. And a, a, a school teacher in Schuyler, Nebraska, knew that the Methodist church was closing up. And they had a, a Barkoff that was the name of the builder, Oregon, which was a very good builder, that he bought at auction from the closed church for $300. And he carted it out to his father's farm just on the state, the west state border of Nebraska. And it had been in the barn for several years. And he realized it had some pipes that were 21 feet tall, and he never could get that in the house. So I was able to buy it from him for the $300 plus the $15 of gasoline that he had spent in hauling it. And I brought it all back. On trailer? Truck? No, in a big truck. Big mm -hmm. truck. And uh, the parts of it I didn't use. The only thing I used out of it were the pipes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, beginning, the wind chest, so the pipe stand on mm -hmm. where the mechanism mm -hmm. is. But it was a tracker, mechanical action. I worked on it for three years. I hated it. I, I realized it was going to have a very stiff key action. Mm -hmm. It would wear your fingers out in no time and eventually cause all kinds of trouble physically. So I... Happened to go down the center aisle of Carr Chapel in 79 when the new organ was being put in. Mm -hmm. This console you see right here was being on a dolly taking, taken out of the building down the aisle. And I said to the organ builder, I said, Ross, what are you going to do with that? And he was hauling it out to the city dump. Mm. And I said, I'll give you $50 for it. And it was the best decision I made on the whole shebang because uh, I took out all the mechanical wind chests and traded them to other organ builders for things I needed. And then I built myself the whole mechanism for the new electro, electric action mm -hmm. organ. And uh, so we have pipes from uh, three different sources a pipe maker in Holland, the Netherlands, uh, from an old pipe in 1904 in uh, Schuyler, Nebraska, and a Christian church organ in Richmond, Missouri. And the pipes are 118 uh, years old. Uh, all the others are 80 years old and the new organs, organ pipes are 34 years old. And so I, I used the console to manage the pipes for the new organ. And it, it 
serves very well. I finished in 1988. And would you like to hear just some of the pipes? Mm-hmm. As soon as we huh? finish with this interview, we'd love to get a little bit of you playing, if, if that works for you. I can show you. Let us let us finish two couple more questions. We'll yeah. let you take the take okay. over the keys. Okay. Uh, so you, your name Emmett Smith. Obviously, you're not the only Emmett Smith in the Metroplex. What is it? What does it feel like to be named Emmett Smith after uh, certain other Emmett Smiths in the Metroplex have made names for themselves? You've shared a few stories. What what is what is that like? Well. I always admired the football player, Emmett Smith, who spells his name E-M-M-I-T-T. He's a good fellow. He's a nice man. He's an honorable man, a wonderful football player. So I was not at all unhappy to have the same spoken name that he had. Uh, But he had so many followers, it made some of mine sleeps at night uh, (laughs) unbelievable. Or men, sometimes sober, sometimes drunk, would call and say, I've got a bet down uh, going on here. How many yards are you going to make on that game tomorrow? And <laughs> so I said, you've got the wrong one. And there'd be all kinds of response. But, uh, yes, that, was, uh, that doesn't happen anymore since he's not on television all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. But I've never met him. And there was a time several years ago when they rounded up everybody they could find the name of Emmett Smith, but they never could come here. Mm. And I guess they didn't expect to find someone in the music world yes, sir. with that name. But well, I you, have great admiration for number 22 on the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. Well, you're about to play the organ for us, but we want to thank you, Emmett, for the time. Your wife, Judy, of 42 years. Thank you for inviting us into your home, Judy, lovely lady. And then our friend David Rasco introduced me to you originally. So thank you, David Rasco. I want to throw a shout out to David, a uh, friend of mine, a longtime TCU uh, fan, Hall of Fame member of the, uh, of the football team. Great, great guy. But he introduced us. So thank you, David. And Brenton, you want to you want to ask him his final question? Sure. Before we get up and play, uh-huh. um, best day of your life without family, you know, no, not marriage and, and things like that. But I got to Probably. Playing the recital in 1987 at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Mm. Because I had the cathedral all to myself from 7 o'clock at night until 7 o'clock the next morning. Nobody else except uh, what they call an assistant who helps with pulling the stops on the console, which didn't work very well. No, it, it's fine now. It's a new organ that uh, was in the fire. It was not damaged. Uh, How many keyboards? Five. Mm. Five. That's a pretty good story. How many stops? Not as many as Broadway Baptist has. Mm-hmm. Broadway Baptist Church in Fort Worth has the biggest French-style organ in the world. Mm. 191. Oh. This is Oregon City. 191 Broadway Baptist, 160 First Methodist, 133 First Presbyterian, 107 uh, Arbor Lawn. Uh, but who's counting? I am. <laughs> and uh, it's it's wonderful to live. Well, Mr. Emmett Smith, thank you for Thank you so interview. much. Now thank you. Sort of, thank you very much. Thank you one more thing us. I'd like oh, to yeah. say Please. before I quit. We're not going to stop you if you want to keep going. One thing. I listen to baseball football, basketball, read it, hear it on TV, 
And the TCU Horned Frogs pulled out all the stops and beat SMU. Pulling out all the stops is strictly organ talk. <laughs> and I'm going to show you stops and what happens when you pull one. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. These Thank knobs you. are called stops. But they do the reverse. You pull it out. It doesn't stop. It starts. So these silver pipes across the front, nothing happens. No sound. All I have to do is pull out a stop. Same keys. A different stop. Same keys. A different stop. The softest sound in the organ is this. There's another set of pipes very much like that. Now, what it gets louder, I'm opening the shutters, letting the sound out. That's in tune. The first one I showed you is tuned out of tune on purpose, and it's called a celeste because it makes a heavenly sound. There's the in tune, here's the celestial. This is the lowest sound in the organ. You feel it more than you hear it, but it's an octave lower than this one, which is the one next to the window. If you're playing something quiet, That's why you have different keyboards, so you can have instant different sounds. And you have pistons that will work a lot of stops for you. Now, suppose I'm playing on this. I want a little more. So, you can do all kinds of things. That's how you do it.